Welcome to Essential Ethics, your gateway to discussion about the ethics of medical treatment for sick children. This podcast is brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. I am your host, John Massey, clinical lead of the Children's Bioethics Centre. This episode is part of our series called The Ethics Toolkit. When treating sick children and their families, clinicians are sometimes faced with challenging ethical situations. This series explores how bioethicists help clinicians address these challenges. Today, from the Ethics Toolkit, we're talking about the principles of bioethics, a framework that we draw on heavily in our ethical discourse at the Children's Bioethics Centre. Today, I'm joined by Professor Lynn Gillam, who's the Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre and Professor at the University of Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks, John. Lynn, you sound a long way away, but uh, in these times of social distancing, that's probably a very good thing. Uh, yes, this is as close as we can safely get, John, and I'm sure we've still managed to talk. Lynn, I think that that's a very ethical approach. The principles of bioethics have been developed and used extensively, certainly in what we do, but I sense around the world. But how did it really come about that this has become one of the main frameworks for bioethical discussions? The idea that there are four key principles in bioethics, and that's what we should use to think about any ethical issue at all related to healthcare has been around probably since the late 70s to 80s approximately. So we're really familiar with it now. But at the time, in my view, it was quite a revolutionary step to take. And it in many ways represents the move from moral philosophy as a kind of academic discipline to bioethics as a practical discipline trying to develop and use tools which actually help to think through real situations. In terms of the history and why this is so different, moral philosophers spend a lot of time thinking about theories about what makes something the right or the wrong thing to do, and there are different and competing theories. Um, So you might be familiar with some of those names. Utilitarianism is one of those theories which says the right thing to do is the thing that maximises good outcomes, basically, or maximises happiness for everybody. Kantianism, competing ethical theory, which focuses very much on the idea that we should respect persons and not use a person as a tool or a means, but regard them as important in themselves. So the focus to moral philosophy is very much there are different moral theories. When you bring one of these moral theories to a practical problem, the outcome that you get, the the conclusion that you come to depends on your starting point of your moral theory. And a lot of moral philosophy is about thinking about those differences between the theories. The revolutionary thing that the principles approach to bioethics does is to say, okay, let's stop focusing on the differences between these various moral theories, but instead focus on the things that are similar. And that's where those principles have come from, looking for the similarities the things on which the the competing moral theories all agree on. And that tells us really, okay, whatever we disagree on, here's a set of things that we can agree on and that'll be a starting point for going forwards. And that's why, to me, this is an absolutely crucial step. It's become so familiar we hardly think about what there was before, but this is a huge step forward, in my view, in, in a practical approach to ethical problems. 
that was a framework or the principles brought together by Beecham and Childress uh, in North America. And I guess we might get to that a little bit later in terms of potential criticisms of it. But they identified four key principles, respect for autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if it's right to say that prima facie obligations that we might have about respecting people's autonomy, doing good for people, uh, an obligation not to do harm, I think that's been around for a long time, and then yep. justice, which we'll talk about, but can wear many hats. Yeah. So, yes, John, that's right. And the thing that's important there is the idea of these being prima facie, which is a way of saying they're not absolute rules in principle principles and we do have an obligation if you accept this approach the obligation is yes to avoid doing harm to do good to respect people's autonomy but sometimes those can compete with each other or be in tension with each other and it's not possible to follow every one of them absolutely 100 percent so they sit there as principles which could be complementary but could be intention so in the area of no rules a guideline for thinking So therefore, Lynn, I think we've got a complex ethical problem at work. There are lots of things going on, and sometimes it's hard to know where to start. So in some ways, I see the four principles as a very easy way in which to dive in and start thinking about the problem and even have a matrix of of quadrants, perhaps, where you can spend some time considering each of the principles. If they compete, it's therefore not going to be a computer algorithm, so a a totally simple way that anybody can just arrive at the answer or artificial intelligence perhaps could arrive at the answer. Yes, absolutely. It's a great starting point. It's a great way of organising all of the messy bits and pieces of information and concerns that you might have about a particular situation and set you on a way of thinking about it. But even, in fact, you and I, John, if we had the same situation in front of us and we were working with these principles, we wouldn't necessarily or obviously come to the same conclusion because there's still judgment calls to be made. Uh, We still have to interpret what those principles mean in the particular circumstance. And it might even be that there's not one clear right way and everything else is wrong we might end up saying, okay, we could do A or B here. And actually, in terms of principles, both of them look quite ethically justifiable and there's not much to choose between them. So it's a clear starting point, but as you dig deeper, the complexities arise and you can go off in different directions. But what it does do, even if not giving us the simple answer, Lynn, it does provide provide a structure and it provides a process whereby all the important considerations or at least most of them can be considered yeah that's the idea assuming you believe that there are only four principles and and perhaps that's an argument that you know if we draw the uh, metaphor from the toolkit perhaps that the hammer's out and everything's been hammered into the four principles and certainly as we start to talk further and try and unpack what those principles mean uh, they're very broad general ideas there will be different concepts lying within there but at least what it does is that it gives us a, that common language. And we, so we perhaps can at least agree that there are four really important things, principles to, mm. that need discussing. So yep. rather than say you come from this school and I come from that school of, of thought, at least we have a common language. And perhaps, Lynn, do you think it's more generalisable? Do you think that people in other settings around the world, different cultures, 
maybe even different times would actually agree on these four principles as being important? Great question, John. Much debated question. I think the intention of principalism and the idea of principles is that these culturally neutral, I guess, so that across very different cultural and religious settings and even across different times, the the idea is that these principles are applicable. These are the, the ethical things that matter. And they're often used in that way. You can take them to any context, use them, and they'll be equally applicable. There's quite a bit of pushback to that idea as well. And again, once you start to use them in practice, you see how that works out. So it's probably the case that virtually in every culture, there would be general agreement uh, that you should avoid harming people. It's wrong to harm people. So that looks culturally neutral. But then cultural differences re-emerge when you start to apply that and say, well, what counts as harming somebody? Uh, I guess one of the really common examples of that is things like circumcision or female genital cutting, which in some cultures are regarded as the right thing to do, i.e. you would be harming a young woman if she hadn't had that procedure. In other cultures, we look back and say, well, that's mutilation and that's terrible. It's clearly harming somebody. So we agree that you shouldn't harm people. We disagree about what counts as harming people. So it doesn't actually make cultural difference go away. And in the end, there are, I think, some really difficult choices to be made between competing cultural values. As you say, it gives us a starting point. We know what we're talking about. We're talking about don't harm people, then trying to understand what is the effect. I thought we were meant to be here to make things easy for our listeners, Lynn, but uh, you've almost very quickly gone to uh, one of the most troubling examples in, in the healthcare. But as you say, we're here to have common ground at least. So, Lynn, why don't we spend some time and just pick apart each of the principles? And I'm going to start with respect for autonomy. Uh, And I think it's important, uh, as you've often pointed out to me, that it's respect for autonomy rather than just purely autonomy. Yes. Uh, And and this is the way they tend to fall out, that we often start with autonomy. And, and again, that may be a a criticism of the North American approach that autonomy comes out tops. Mm. However, Mm. let's consider respect uh, for autonomy. And also I think remember that, uh, you know, we are working in children's hospitals. So when we're thinking about respect for autonomy, who are we thinking about autonomy for then? Let's take a step back, John, first and think about what autonomy is supposed to mean. Because again, the idea, the really broad idea, uh, autonomy is the idea of self-rule, of being able to make your own decisions for yourself. The principle of respect for autonomy says that everybody, but in particular health professionals, should respect that capacity of people to make their own decisions for themselves. So already, as you've pointed out, in a paediatric context, that can be a little bit awkward when we're thinking about babies and young children who clearly don't have the capacity to decide for themselves. So we we can't respect that. Then we look at the parents and say, okay, let we could think about respecting parental autonomy, so respecting the parents' capacity to decide. But remember, autonomy is to decide for yourself. When parents are making a decision for their child, they're not deciding for themselves, they're deciding for the child. In many ways, the sort of go-to principle of respect for autonomy doesn't sit 
very neatly in the paediatric context. And we've got to do quite a lot more work, I think, to figure out to what extent that principle is useful for us and how we need to perhaps reinterpret or understand a bit more deeply what that's all about. It does seem to be, though, a very foundational principle, doesn't it? It seems to originate from Kant about not using people as a, a means to someone else's end. But I think it does highlight sometimes a tension in paediatric decision-making where there's not just two people, the patient and the healthcare <laughs> provider, but three people. So you're right, John, that, that autonomy is, it seems foundational or absolutely pivotal, particularly when you're thinking about adults. And it's in terms of the contribution of the principles have made to the field of bioethics, it's a really important example of where different ethical theories are actually focusing on the same thing. So as you've pointed out, uh, Kantism focuses very much on respecting the person as the one who makes their own life, I guess. Utilitarian theories aren't concerned about that. However, they mostly say we should, uh, our obligation is to maximise happiness or good outcomes, but they all recognise that what makes one person happy is different from what makes another person happy. So in the end, you need to ask that person what they want. And so the apparently competing theories converge on this idea of ask people what they want uh, and put weight on that. Of course, there have got to be limits to that. I'm going to say, of course, and you can unpack that for me, but (laughs) of course, there have to be limits on that. But I guess in adult healthcare, the go-to position is often, in particular, if a patient doesn't want something, it's wrong to do it to them. That's it. Concerns about beneficence and non-maleficence fade into the background because autonomy is, uh, I guess, the overriding principle, at least for an adult who has the capacity to make decisions for themselves. Obviously, the value of respect for autonomy is the sense that the physician doesn't know everything about that person and doesn't know all their circumstances. But sometimes the physician knows a fair bit and the person wants to make a bad decision, but we're obliged to allow them to do that. And in a sense, that's a good uh, in the system. The assumption there, though, of course, is the person has capacity to make a decision. When we think about that of Kantian origins, perhaps, if, if that's where this comes from, it relies on the person being an autonomous agent. And mm. I think when we're doing paediatric health care, of course, a lot of questions come up about what actually is an autonomous mm. agent. Uh, you know, I'm worried in, in sort of Kantian philosophy that, uh, you know, very young children, uh, babies and the very disabled don't get a gig here. So a way around that perhaps is referring to it as respect for persons. At the early stages of principalism being proposed and refined as an approach, the concept was respect for persons, and then that was in fact first articulated in a research ethics setting rather than a a clinical setting. So the difference seems to be that respect for persons says, I guess, take seriously the personal life and the individuality of that person. Uh, Respect for autonomy says place a lot of weight on the wishes of a person who has the capacity for autonomy. One of the criticisms, in fact, the idea of autonomy is, at least in some versions of it, it sets the bar too high. So in Kantian terms, for example, to be autonomous, you need to be able essentially to make your own as Kant said, it moral rules, I guess. So 
it requires a lot of cognitive capacity, a lot of reflection. You've got to think deeply about your reasons for doing things. So it represents a way that probably most of us don't operate most of the time. And that interpretation of autonomy, most of us are going around making non-autonomous decisions because we're doing it through habit. We're not really thinking it through. Uh, We haven't taken into account all of the information. So I guess one of the ongoing debates within bioethics about principles is exactly how high to set the bar on autonomy, which is really important when we come to the paediatric setting and start thinking about adolescence, which is obviously where this really sort of where the rubber hits the road for us in particular. Yeah, and in a classic example, wasn't it, was that uh, Gillick case, which and we now talk about Gillick competence in which a 14-year-old young person wished to have an oral contraceptive pill without involving their parents in the decision. And so the court upheld the right of that child or young person to do that, that they had the capacity to make that particular decision. And, and I think that's shifted us so far. But, you know, one of the other podcasts in this series is going to be about decision-making. And in that, you know, one of the things that is important is considering preferences. So even young children will have preferences. And so that's a stage before Gillick competence and sort of we're supporting them as emerging decision makers. And that's a version of autonomy, isn't it? Yes and no, John. Um, so the clear, preference, having preferences is very different from making an autonomous decision. So one way to think about autonomy in children is that children are developing the capacity for autonomy. They haven't got there yet. And in particular, they haven't got there, not just because they lack capacity to understand information, but they lack the capacity to reflect on it and think through it. I guess, in particular, to think forwards, to think about their own life and work out what it is their values are in the long term and how the information they're getting relates to that. So children, you know, tend to think in the short term. uh, And that's just a, a developmental Thing. So there's a, there's a big difference between having preferences and having autonomy. Um, children are developing autonomy. They haven't got there yet. But we could involve them in decision-making and take account of their preferences on the basis that we should not just um, respect autonomy that's already there, but we should um, foster developing autonomy. So, in fact, we're teaching them. And I think sometimes uh, in paediatrics, we think in particular about children who have chronic or long-term conditions who are clearly going to need to be involved in decision-making about that their care for the rest of their lives. Uh, and it seems really important to foster that in the clinical context. But talking about developing autonomy in the end gives you less ethical weightiness than respecting the decision of someone who has actually achieved the capacity for autonomy. But it's much easier to say children are persons. Clearly, children are persons. They have their own inner world, uh, a life that matters to them, their own way of seeing the world. Um, And we can respect children as persons well before they have um, developed full capacity for autonomy. I mean, as uh, Horton the Elephant from Dr. Seuss says, a person's a person no matter how small. And I think, you know, this is important part of our discourse in ethical thinking is at least when we're in that part of the matrix where we're thinking about autonomy and we've thought about parents and natural decision makers and legal decision makers. So there's another, there's more work to do, though, for considering the child uh, as an emerging decision maker, what their preferences might be, almost a substituted judgment about what their preferences might have been, but also respecting 
not just their future self, but their at least in some way their current self and yep. developing them as a, a person and an emerging decision maker. So that's in that block of respecting persons and in a very broad category of autonomy, if we take yep. a broad view as I'd like to, of autonomy. So, Lynn, there's a lot of work to do in autonomy. What about beneficence? So beneficence is the idea that we have an obligation to benefit people. Pretty hard to disagree with that. And people sometimes wonder what's the difference between the principle of beneficence to benefit people and the principle of non-maleficence, the obligation to not cause harm. And clearly they're connected. You might think of them as two sides of the same coin in some way. What's important about the principle of beneficence fundamentally in healthcare is it says that it's not enough to avoid doing harm. There's actually a positive obligation to make people better. And that's in the healthcare context, a particular obligation of healthcare professionals more strongly than it is of people walking around in the community. So we all, as People in the street have some obligation to help others, but the obligation of health professionals, by virtue of their particular role, the job they've taken on, is greater than that. It's not enough to sit back and say, well, I'm not doing any harm. You need to step up and actually do some good. I like that uh, framing of it, Lynn, because it's always struck me that, uh, you know, the sort of simplest medical ethic is do no harm. It's what Hippocrates said, and, and that's true, of course. But if that's your only philosophy of medical practice, you're not going to do anything because everything you do, giving a tablet's got side effects or someone might choke on it. Doing an operation is going to cut the skin and cause pain and leave a scar. So healthcare is actually about, in just about all cases, there's going to be some harm or risk of harm. So you're exactly right that if that was the only thing, there would be very little medical practice going on, I guess. And so everything is, I guess, a combination of those considerations of I might be doing some harm here, there are potential risks. On the other hand, uh, my job is actually to produce benefit. Now I've got to weigh those up and figure out what is overall ethically appropriate. Is that just consequentialism? I see. Remember, um, we're in the space where competing ethical principles uh, are in agreement. So this is a consequentialist way of thinking. Consequentialism usually says, though, we should think about this for everybody equally. And that is, I think, probably, I'm going to say anathema. That might be too strong a word, but let's go with it for the moment. That's anathema to clinical practice where... I think clinicians take their focus to be on benefiting the patient. The patient comes first and there's not an equal obligation to benefit the patient's family, the people walking past in the street, the clinicians in the room. Everyone is not equal. The greater obligation is to the patient. That's fascinating because I think you know one of the key questions is beneficence, but, but who's the benefit? Too. And I think mm. uh, sometimes in paediatrics, there is a risk that the benefit is to the parents, but, you know, when it's young children or very disabled children, because that's where the discourse is, but just occasionally could lose sight of who's benefiting. So that, that question of who am I supposed to be benefiting? And if it's more than one person, is there an order of priority? That is a really important question. Uh, my sense is that typically in medicine, there's a straightforward answer to this, which is the patient first. Uh, which is one of the things that makes situations like a pandemic, for example, where we have to be concerned about a lot of people's health, really ethically troubling because it's not what we normally do in a clinical context. 
Yeah, so that's sort of taking into account the broader relationships and obviously it, in the simplest situation of the child, though, it's the child is part of the family and so those obligations and those uh, interests are not completely independent. Uh, yes, it's tricky with a child because the child lives within a family and the, some of the things that you need to have happen for the child to have a good life are actually things that are about benefiting the family as a whole. When you think about it, it's easy to see that just because it's good for the whole family doesn't necessarily mean it's good for the individual child. A weakness, of course, is that there is still a, a very subjective element to benefit. So we're sort of potentially discussing you know, who's the most benefit to or who's enough benefit yep. to. How is that decided? Uh, there may be empirical data, so it can be really clear. But I think both beneficence and non-maleficence can suffer a little bit in that there can be too much judgment. You're right, and that will never go away, in my view. We can think in a more nuanced way about it, become clearer about where that element of subjective judgment is coming in, but it's never going to go away because we're talking about people. In this thinking in a more nuanced way about benefit and non-harm beneficence and non-maleficence, we can at least start to divide that up into particular domains and we can think about physical benefit and harm psychological, emotional benefit and harm and social benefit and harm in terms of the impacts that a particular treatment might have, for example, on people's capacity to interact with others and have social relationships. We can use a framework that gives us a more nuanced idea. That does not yet tell us whether the physical is more important in the end than the psychological and emotional. That's a, a judgment that has to be made. For adults, it's easy. You, what you say is principle of autonomy tells us respect what the patient themselves wants. So it's up to them to prioritise their, for example, social well-being over their physical well-being or the other way around. Uh, when we're trying to make that assessment for children, we can't just go to the parents. So there's going to be that subjective element in there. I guess at least, as we've said before, we've got a common language and we've got a common process and a way of at least making us think about all the, the patients. Yeah, look, once you've said it out like that and as people talk it through, um, my experience is that different people get closer together rather than further apart, although you're never going to get everyone to think exactly the same thing. And, and as I was saying before, you might narrow it down to one or two ethically good options rather than the one that's perfect. The other thing I think, though, John, is once you've got that common language and you've got that framework and you work it through, what you can see is that difference of view is not a matter of someone's a good person and someone else is a bad person. Disagreements make sense. In that way, to me, it takes the heat out of it all. You can see where the element of subjective judgment is coming in. It's actually quite contained usually within that framework and people can see the reasons for each other's positions and there's never going to be an algorithm to do that. So we just have to accept that. I mean, it's actually not just within the, the four principles making trade-offs, but actually sometimes potentially between the four, uh, the four principles. And Absolutely, yep. And I think that brings us to the last one, which is justice. And I guess it does, in our clinical ethics discussions, often finds its way to the bottom and isn't necessarily, necessarily needs to be a lot of uh, consideration, but it's very important uh, bioethical principle, but it wears a lot of hats. In some ways, we've already discussed it in the sense that that is a form of justice, isn't it? But mm -hmm. justice is, is wider than that, Lynn, isn't it? 
in the context of the four principles, is most centrally understood as distributive justice. So this is the idea that health professionals have an obligation to allocate fairly or in a just way the resources that they have at their disposal. So for individual clinicians, that might be something as simple as uh, allocating their time between patients fairly. Then as you work up the healthcare system, you can think about the budget of a department or the budget of the hospital or the budget of the healthcare system as a whole. So it's typically about resources, which is mostly in the end money, but not entirely. But what about other things like rights and laws, etc.? So as conceived of as by Beecham & Childress, justice is not about the criminal law and obeying laws. The question of whether you have an ethical obligation to obey laws is a really interesting question. Probably the answer is mostly, but it depends on whether the law is an ethically justifiable law or not. But that's not really within the purview of distributive or justice in this context. So it's a justice is about fair allocation of resources and I guess the fair treatment of people, treating people equally and not discriminating against individuals on the basis of ethically irrelevant features like ethnicity or sexuality or language. All right, then. Well, why don't we try and put the principles to work? Now, of course, in our earlier series of classic conundrums, we had drawn on the four principles. But Let's today just think about a case, and this is a six-year-old child with a complex rheumatological disorder. There are multiple new biological agents being developed all the time. This girl's condition has deteriorated. It's not quite life-threatening, but certainly a lot of morbidity. All the other standard treatments, including some of the proven biologicals, haven't worked, but there's a new one under development overseas. It's not quite finished the trials. This girl's not eligible to be in the trial. Certainly promising, uh, at least if you read Facebook, but it it costs a lot of money. It it costs a million dollars for a treatment and the family want to do it for their child. So that comes to us as clinical Mm -hmm. ethics committee. So what what might we do to to dive in and, and think about that? Okay, so in terms of structuring thinking and using principles, our first question is, okay, here's this child in this situation. What are the possible options at the moment? So the parents have presented this option, which is we would like to try this new and really expensive drug. What are the other possibilities? So there's presumably continuing on with whatever the current medical management is. I don't know whether there's some other option or not, but that would be my first question. Then using principles of beneficence and non-maleficence, we need to ask for each one, what are the potential benefits to this child of this new drug, of the standard treatment? What are the potential benefits? What are the potential burdens and risks? And now we're covering off beneficence, non-maleficence. On the basis of what we've talked about before, we need to think about not just physical benefits and uh, harms or burdens, but we need to think about psychological, emotional, social effects on the child as well. Uh, I guess this child is lucky in the sense that her parents seem to be talking about using a drug in Australia rather than taking her overseas to get the drug. If they wanted to take her overseas, one of the things we need to think about is the effects of having to travel and live away from home um, as one of the potential harms or burdens on the child. So we like to try and line them up and think about what are the benefits and burdens. So overall, 
how beneficial or harmful is each option to the child. So we're now at that point, we're just thinking about beneficence and non-maleficence. Now, let's suppose at that point, it looks like given the child's condition and the lack of other options, this experimental drug looks like it would have a reasonable chance of offering more benefit than current management options and the risks appear proportionate. They don't to outweigh the benefits. Now we start thinking about the money. So if we've got to the point where it looks like it would be a beneficial option, what about this problem of the money? So you said a million dollars, that sounds to me like quite a lot of money. Who's going to pay that is our next question. Yes. Are the well, parents saying we've got the drug or you know, we can pay for it? Are they asking for the hospital to pay it out of its pharmacy budget? Do they want the federal government, the health department to stump up the money? So tell me a bit more information, John. I I think they want somebody else to pay for it and either the uh, rich hospital or the rich federal government. Failing that, they'll chip in some themselves and crowdsource. The question would be, we could, the hospital has a fixed budget that it can use for drugs. If we spend a million dollars on this drug for this child, that's a million dollars that we don't have to spend on other children other things. So what's a fair allocation of the hospital budget? Is it fair to allocate that amount of money to that child? How do we figure that out? That's hard. And so the, the, the principle of, of justice is in itself thing that, you know, it sounds easy. We all know fair when we see it, but actually we don't. We need to unpack it a lot. So we could say a fair allocation of the hospital's resources is to allocate them to on the basis of who needs them the most. And if we were to do that, we might say, well, this child, you haven't told us a lot about her condition, but it sounds pretty bad. To the extent to which she's experiencing physical pain and suffering, limitation of her mobility and you know, not able to do the ordinary things of life, if things are really bad for her, then it feels like she has a high need. And that would be a reason to allocate, I guess, a larger proportion of the hospital budget to her than to children who have less need. On the other hand, and here's the the complicating bit, another way of understanding a fair allocation of resources is we should allocate on the basis of capacity to benefit. So we should allocate funds to buy purchase drugs for children who are most able to benefit from those. And whilst this child must be in a really difficult, awful situation because of her condition, if we spend a million dollars on a drug that is not going to make a lot of difference, might, for example, extend her life but not for a very long time, or might improve her quality of life a bit but not a lot, and we set that next to spending the money on drugs for uh, children with other conditions where a huge difference could be made in their quality of life or a very long extension of their life expectancy, then it would appear not fair to allocate the million dollars to this child who has lower capacity to benefit than to other children who could benefit more from the same amount of money. So even then, it's not straightforward. I mean, there are often uh, structures and policies and policies, we hope, with views that sort of similar ethical analysis that uh, mean that perhaps a clinical ethics committee doesn't have to be the final decision maker there. But it's it's fascinating to see you dive into the case and and clearly beneficence and and non-maleficence, this sort of case, are the first place to go. And then because it's expensive drug, justice gets a good workout there. You didn't mention anything about autonomy 
although we tend to think autonomy is the most important, in fact, distributive justice is. All right, Lynn. Well, that's uh, a really good way for us to wind up our podcast. We've had a fantastic discussion around the broad concept of the principles which have really given us a, a common language and a really good starting point for initiating discussions uh, about complex ethical situations and depending on the type of situation then the weighting of discussions might vary between respect for autonomy beneficence and non-maleficence which it might be really part of the same discussion and then justice and so I think it's been really helpful today Lynn to dive deeply into these and try and understand the principles so thank you for your time with us on essential ethics thank you again thank you for listening to this podcast from the team at essential ethics this podcast was made possible by the generous support of the friends of the children's bioethics center auxiliary the podcast was recorded in the creative services studio at the royal children's hospital it was produced in conjunction with wavelength creative If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. If you would like to know more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, including our annual conference, visit our website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired. Be inspired.